You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. All right, I want to welcome everybody back to another episode of Semper Reform on the Radio. Today we have with us Timothy Kaufman, and we are going to be covering part two of our episode on the Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholics and the Mass. And before we get to, to that, I just want to remind everybody that we are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Please uh, check out the other podcasts that are out there. You don't have to agree with everything that they say, but they are out there and you don't have to agree with everything that we say uh, but I, I do want to thank you for for tuning in today and I, I want to point everybody in the direction of uh, Tim Kaufman's his his personal blog that is the whitehorseblog.org whitehorseblog.org and a uh, lot of the con- whitehorseblog.com oh why did I say .org that's okay that's <laughs> Yep, you're right. You're right. I just looked it up. It's whitehorseblog.com. And a, a lot of the content that we're going to be covering today is found on that blog. It's out of a series called Their Praise Was Their Sacrifice. It's an eight-part series. And we uh, – well, l- let me also say that Tim- Timothy Kaufman is a writer for the Trinity Foundation. Also, please check out the, the Trinity Foundation. They've got some excellent stuff on there. And you know what, Tim, uh, th- that reminds me uh, about the Trinity Foundation because I had a question that I wanted to ask you. Is the Trinity, in, in light of the fact that it is a 500-year anniversary for the Trinity Foundation, uh, not for the Trinity Foundation, for the Protestant Reformation, is the Trinity Foundation, do you know if they are going to be doing anything this year? I know that I think it was uh, last year or the year before they were, they were supposed to have a conference and that was canceled. Have you heard anything about uh, this year? Okay, yeah. So, so uh, they're they're exploring the uh, possibility. So they want they want to celebrate the 500th anniversary, and uh, they're exploring dates right now. So I'm sure that uh, they'll announce something. I'm a contributor, and occasionally they ask me to participate, speak at their conferences, or contribute articles to the Trinity Review. And they have reached out to explore the possibility of an event later this fall. So 
certainly that that may uh, that may actually materialize. So just watch this space and we'll see what comes available. All right, excellent. Um, I'm hoping that they do, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to attend just because I have three small kids. But they they always put out excellent content. So uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask Brother Kaufman is so. If, if you've been following our podcast, you know that I've gotten into some hot water with some family members who are very upset because we've been talking about Roman Catholicism. And it's interesting because I keep telling them, well, we're, we're going to talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses. We're going to talk about the Mormons. We're going to talk about other other things like that. And I just haven't gotten around to doing an episode on the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'm going to. And I haven't gotten around to doing an episode on the Mormons, but I'm going to. And I'll just say right now that both of those are what I would say in error so much so that that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are not Christians. And the the so I haven't gotten around to talking about other other faiths or other uh, religions. And I'm I'm sort of stuck on the, the Roman Catholics. We we've we've done most of most of our stuff is conf- confronting the errors of Roman Catholicism. And so I I spoke to two of my family members who were upset. They were they were very angry with what I was doing, and and they both said the same thing. They said, "Well, you need to stop bashing." the Roman Catholics and you need to stop bashing the Roman Catholic Church and I wanted to ask you Tim what what would you say to somebody like that because I know that you said that your your mom is a Roman Catholic and um, you know I also wanted to ask I mean is she aware that you are putting content out there that is against Roman Catholicism and what would you say to somebody who says a family member or somebody who who says that your your that your content is hateful and that you are they, they would describe it as well you're just bashing us and you're trashing us and you need to stop bashing the Roman Catholics and and their faith well I, I would I would first say that uh, to characterize what we do as bashing or hateful bashing is itself bashing (laughs) because in the end you know when the scripture says for example that a bishop must be blameless as a steward of god not self-willed it goes on and it says that one of the things the bishop is supposed to do and i'd say that this applies to anyone who's professing pressure is to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers it's titus 1 9 and, uh, you know, if, if we find that Roman Catholics are teaching something that is contrary to Scripture, then we open up the Bible and we explain why we disagree with them. That's not bashing. It's just the Bible. And when Roman Catholics make a historical argument saying, well, according to the early church, uh, this is what has always been taught since the days of the apostles. I say, let's open up the church fathers and explore whether or not that claim is true. It's not hate, it's history. It's not bashing, it's the Bible. Roman Catholics make a claim based on certain evidence. And 
there's nothing wrong with going into a discovery process, just like you would in a court of law, analyzing the evidence and determining if what they say is true. So I simply respond that what Roman Catholics are claiming is not true, and whether it's from the scripture or it's from the Bible uh, or from history. They, uh, they say the historical record supports us. I go back and I find out that it doesn't. They say the scriptures support us, and I read it and I find out it doesn't. And what are we to do except to answer their claims? Their claims are that we have evidence and we go into a discovery process and realize that evidence doesn't substantiate the claims. It's not bashing, it's just the Bible. It's not hate, it's history. And if anyone knows anything about uh, history, Roman Catholics ought to understand. If you make it an argument from history, we're gonna go look at the historical record to see if what your claims are, uh, see if what, what you're claiming is true. And uh, you know, it's, when it comes to family members, I do have family members that are still Roman Catholic. And you know, funny story, uh, I do write against Roman Catholicism and I've written against Roman Catholicism. And one of the books that I wrote was called Quite Contrary, which is you know, an analysis of the teachings of the apparitions of Mary. And my mother, you know, was discouraged, I think, when, when I left the Roman Catholic Church and then even more distraught when I wrote a book against the, you know, her beloved apparitions because she was the one who first taught me devotion to the apparitions of Mary. And she was looking at some of my work online and she actually went to a Facebook page that mentioned my book and she accidentally liked it. You know, Facebook can 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 trick you into liking things so that you can they get more uh, more clicks and uh, therefore more ad revenues. And my mother accidentally liked my book, quite contrary. So that's as close as I've ever gotten to her approval for the, the work that I do. <laughs> but but the fact is that, you know, like you said, that bashing is just a substitute for an intellectual argument. The fact is we're not bashing, we're answering our arguments with, with logical arguments. It's not hate, we're examining the historical record to see if what they're saying is true. I hope that, uh, hope that helps. <laughs> yeah, it does. I, I like uh, it's not it's not hate, it's history, and it's not bashing, it's uh, the Bible. So um, I, I think I think that's how you said it. But we're recording this, so I can go back later and listen to to what you actually said. But I I do appreciate that. And so today we're like I said we're picking up part two of the uh, first part of. Uh, the Roman Catholics and the mass. And last time you picked up what was called the sacrifice challenge issued by the Roman Catholics. And we talked about uh, Malachi one verses 10 through 11. And you, you basically took the, the sacrifice challenge and, and, and met it head on. And the, you covered three, uh, three main arguments from uh, the Roman Catholic side, which included Justin Martyr, uh, Irenaeus, and uh, the, the last person's name is Cyprian. Is, is it Cyprian? Uh, Cyprian of Carthage. Yeah. Cyprian. Cyprian of Carthage. And so today we're wanting to pick up where we left off. And last time you, you were saying that the basic arguments of, of the Roman Catholic position is that we, what we have in, in regards to our church service is a, a late uh, or a 16th century novelty. And they, they claim historical precedence in the matter, uh, stating that the, that the mass can go all the way back in church history. And so what you pointed out was that it was a, a late 4th century novelty that wasn't around in the early church. And, and I think that you, you'd 
pointed out that the church fathers, the the three that I mentioned, that they're they're cited by the Roman Catholic Church in order to uh, as an evidence for early historical position for this, but they don't they don't support the the Roman Catholic position at all, and so in a sense. The Roman Catholic Church, I mean, they're, they're basically historical revisionists when it comes to this issue. And we we want to pick that up. Uh, we we want to continue. Uh, and I, I guess, are, are we going to look at other historical figures today? Yes, yes. Well, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to go through uh, uh, basically a survey of the early church all the way through the end uh, of the fourth century to show that what Roman Catholics call the sacrifice of the mass actually didn't originate um, until about 382 AD. That is about 300 years after the apostolic era. And what we find is if you look at a survey from the first century all the way through the latter part of the fourth century, the sacrifice that the church offered was consistent with what the New Testament teaches about the sacrifices of the church. And uh, I'll just, uh, just to lay the groundwork, and this is a pretty solid foundation to start with, let's just, again, just very quickly review what the Bible says about sacrifices that we continue to offer. And if you remember from our first episode, we talked about the fact that the church does continue to offer sacrifices. Uh, I think that because our ears are so finely tuned to the finality of sacrifices for sins that we sometimes forget or overlook what the, what the Bible actually says about the continuation of sacrifices. And so to, to just do a quick survey, Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not transformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, so here we have a sacrifice that has to do with our bodies, a living sacrifice, and a transformed mind that is renewed by the word of God. You go to Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. It says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. First um, Peter 2.5 uh, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Uh, and also this very important one, Philippians 4.18, where Paul has received his the provision for his physical needs, and he calls that a, a sweet sacrifice. He says, uh, Philippians 4.18, but I have all and abound and am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. And then later in, in Revelation, we read also about the uh, incense that is offered to God is actually the prayer of prayers of the saints. And, and I mention all this because here we have in the New Testament uh, recommendations an admonition, teaching, and instruction that we offer continual sacrifices to God. And those sacrifices are praise, prayer, taking care of each other. The incense is our prayers to God. 
And it's important for us to see this because if we respond to the Roman Catholic sacrifice challenge uh, and by saying that there are no more sacrifices, they'll immediately go to the New Testament and show you all these sacrifices that we continue to offer. And then from there, they'll go to the early church fathers and show that the early church talked an awful lot about offering sacrifices. If we're not equipped from the scriptures and from history to understand what the early church was talking about, we'll fall for the Roman Catholic argument that says, hey, we're offering the sacrifice of the mass. You guys say there's no more sacrifices. Let's go back to the early church and find out that they were offering sacrifices all the time. And what happens? Uh, otherwise intelligent Protestants fall for the argument and convert to Roman Catholicism and say, wow, I didn't realize how many sacrifices the early church was offering. And I guess I, I need to convert back to Roman Catholicism who offers the true sacrifice. So, so when, when we talk about the sacrifice challenge, though, is that, you know, I, I, I read about the sacrifice challenge once online where it said, you know, go back and show us what is the sacrifice that was prophesied by Malachi, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And let's read that passage. Now, it's important for us to understand that what does Paul, what does Peter what did John talk about? Sacrifices, oblations, and incense being offered to God. Thanks, praise, prayers, caring for one another, right? So these are this is incense and sacrifice, right? So let's go back to Malachi 1.11, and it's a prophecy that basically it's a judgment against the sacrifices and incense of the Jews, and a prophecy that one day the Gentiles would offer well-pleasing oblations and sacrifices to God. And this is how it reads. It says, Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, the significance of this to our conversation, especially as, it, as we do, as we interact with Roman Catholics, is that you read the Dewey Catechism, and uh, this is from 1649, and it throws down, essentially throws down the sacrifice challenge. It says, uh, is the Blessed Eucharist a sacrifice? And when we talk about the Eucharist being a sacrifice, as we mentioned in our first episode, in Roman Catholicism, it teaches that the bread and wine are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ and then sacrificed to God in fulfillment of Malachi 1, verses 10 to 11. So, do, you know, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just had a question. Um, well, I, just If you could clarify, because I, I realized after listening to the first episode that you and I are, are both familiar with the terms. Um, can you just, for our listeners, can you just explain what the Eucharist is? is uh, we, we use that term and uh, it came to my understanding that there were some people who didn't understand what the Eucharist is. Okay, that, that's a great question. And it's interesting we asked that because I remember I, I was Roman Catholic even as I was beginning to attend a Protestant church. And for a long time, I kept on referring to communion as the Eucharist because that's just how I brought up. But, but let's... Let's just say, understand that Eucharist 
is actually a transliteration of the Greek word Eucharistia, which means thanks or thanksgiving. So when we talk about the Eucharist, it's actually, uh, it's actually a term that means thanksgiving. And when you read what the scripture says about offering sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, the early church did refer to the, the bread and wine. They would sometimes refer to that as the Eucharist, and sometimes they would refer to the thanksgiving itself as the Eucharist. It's very interesting to, to ask the question because when we get further through the survey that we're going to conduct later in the episode, we'll find that when the early church refers to the bread and wine as the Eucharist, it is offered to men. When they refer to the thanksgiving and praise and prayer as the Eucharist, it is offered to God. It's important to make that distinction because we are the, the Roman Catholic Mass is the sacrifice of the Mass, is what they call the Eucharist, which is what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. And when we get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we thank God for all that he's done for us. We bless the bread and wine, and we tell everybody there that these are symbols to represent Christ's flesh slain for us, Christ's blood shed for us and we're reminded that as we partake of it we are to to contemplate the great sacrifice that jesus made in that place and and that's what when jesus instituted the lord's supper it was called anamnesis and you know what amnesia is it's forgetfulness well anamnesia is the opposite of forgetfulness it's remembrance he said do this so that you don't forget what i've done for you and we call it the Lord's Supper, and what Roman Catholics call it is the Eucharist, or the sacrifice of the Mass. I will say that the early church did refer to it as Eucharist, but they referred to it very, very precise, in very precise terms. And as we go through and read what the early church taught about the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or the getting together to eat bread and wine to remember what Christ has done for us, they were very, very clear what exactly it was that was being sacrificed. And, and, and it's very important because when we read in the Dewey Catechism, it says, is the Blessed Eucharist a sacrifice? The question is intended to teach Roman Catholics that yes, the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice in which we turn the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, sacrifice it to, to God for sins. And in the, in the answer to this question, in the Dewey Catechism, is the Blessed Eucharist a sacrifice? The answer is, it is a clean oblation which the prophet Malachi foretold. All the holy popes and fathers and councils of the primitive ages teach that the Mass is the self-same sacrifice of bread and wine that had been instituted by our Savior. So that's that's the sacrifice challenge. Let's, let's go back to all the holy popes and fathers and councils. And I'm going to put popes in quotation marks because the, 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 even even the Bishop of Rome wasn't considered the, the chief bishop until the latter part of the fourth century. We can cover that in a different episode, but but let's go back and look at the holy popes and quotation marks and fathers and councils of the primitive ages and find out if that's really what they taught. So to Roman Catholics that are listening, uh, I will say, yes, it is true in episode one, we agreed with the Westminster Confession 
that said the sacrifice of the mass is a popish abomination. We're not backing off of that, but we were challenged by Roman Catholics to explore the early church, read through the early councils and church fathers, and find out if they really did believe that the mass is the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood, if the Lord's Supper is the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood offered to God for sins. And the answer is no, and that's not hate, it's history. We're going to go and take up the sacrifice challenge, and we're going to look at what the early church taught. As you said, we covered Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Cyprian of Carthage last week, and, and Roman Catholics use Justin Martyr to prove the sacrifice of the Mass, and then Justin Martyr explicitly says that praise and prayer is the only thing that's being offered to God. It's being sacrificed. You know, it's true that, uh, that Irenaeus makes reference to the exhibiting the sacrifice uh, after the words of invocation, and that is the, the words of invocation in Roman Catholicism is when we, we invoke the Holy Spirit and, and call the bread and wine the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. Roman Catholics say that's the moment when the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Christ, at which point Irenaeus says that the, the sacrifice of Christ is exhibited to the flock, which is what I described earlier, what we do as Protestants. We say, hey, we thank God, and then at a certain point in the service, the bread and wine are they're symbols to represent something Christ did for us, and we see it and we're to contemplate what Christ did. The problem with Irenaeus then is that he says that the sacrifice of the new covenant is over before they ever invoke the Holy Spirit, which means that the transubstantiated, from the Roman Catholic view, the transubstantiated bread and wine, as they would say, isn't transubstantiated until after the, he'd already offered the sacrifice of the new covenant in accordance with Malachi 1, 10, and 11, which meant Irenaeus didn't support the Mass either. And then we get to Cyprian Carthage, who, who you could, people can go back and listen to the first episode, but Cyprian of Carthage explicitly states that Jesus could not offer his blood mm. to his disciples until after he had first been trampled down, which is a reference right. to the cross, not the, not the night before. And so those three, even though they're used to advance the belief in the sacrifice of the Mass in the early ages, they don't support it because if you go back through and read, so, you know, even when Cyprian of Carthage was talking about Malachi 1, 10, 11, he, he left out anything about the Lord's Supper. He just talked about it as being praise and thanksgiving. And the same goes with Justin Martyr. Same thing goes with Irenaeus. And what we want to do today is having deconstructed the three big ones that Roman Catholics use. I want to just walk us through a survey from the first century all the way to the end of the fourth. And we're going to get to a point where we can say, this moment is when the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass began, and it's 300 years too late to be apostolic. And that's what we want to cover today. And you know what? It's not hate. It's just history. And Roman Catholics <laughs> can, can just deal with history because that's what we're yeah. talking about. You, you know, and, and I, I appreciate the clarity with which you're speaking because um, you said that we agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, and we do, that this is a holy abomination and i'm just thinking about about that that i think really upsets people because people want to have this this attitude of well that's what you believe and i believe this and you know both are right or uh but but that's not the position that we're taking we're taking the position that this this that the mass really is an abomination and you know my 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 hope is that that wouldn't be lost on people and i really believe that there's there's a need to to say that because we we actually believe that that's true 
we we believe that that th this is an this is an egregious error, and that God is not pleased with it. So, uh, Brother Kaufman, I, last which which you already said last week, we looked at the the three big hitters um, from the Roman Catholic side: uh, Justin, Irenaeus, and C Cyprian. I always get the last guy's name wrong. That's uh, okay. C Cyprian, is that yeah. right? Okay. Cyprian, yeah. Do do they? And and so, basically, what they're doing is uh, the, the the Roman Catholics are twisting scripture and rewriting history. Do they have any anybody else to appeal to in in history besides this, or is this basically where their argument stops? And and I know that we're going to take the argument further. Like you said, we're going to go through the, the church history to substantiate even further our claims. But have you? And and the, the other thing is, you said something about you saw online. Somebody say something about uh, the, the sacrifice challenge. Have you engaged anybody on this issue, any Roman Catholics on this issue online? Um, or are, are there other historical figures that they actually appeal to? Or are the, the ones that we talk that, that we're going to talk about today? Well, here's a, I'll say this. that The, the sacrifice challenge, as I found it, is, uh, was from a webpage that had long since expired. And so I don't even know. Who the author is? That like actually, I, th I think I saw it was the Roman Catholics Apologetics Ministry, and I think the Sacrifice Challenge, as I found it, was in, from an expired webpage. But it just basically said, "Here's your challenge. Go do this. Go find out." And, and the intent, of course, was to go back to the early church and find out <laughs> they were offering sacrifices all the time. Yeah, and and, and so you did that. You 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 took up the challenge and you did that. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. Well, yeah. And so the, the, when I when I wrote. The eight-week the eight, uh, eight series, their praise was of sacrifice. It really, it, I originally was just going to do it over four weeks, but there was just so much material to cover. And, and what I found is that when when Roman Catholics arrive at the mention of a sacrifice, they simply assume that it's the sacrifice of the Mass, and then they move on to the next piece of evidence without stopping to explore the context, or in some cases to explore the writing style of the author, or or to examine what's actually being said in the passage when it says that the sacrifice, uh, when it refers to a sacrifice, and, and particularly when it says that Jesus instituted the sacrifice of the New, new Covenant at the Last Supper. And, and you know, so you say that, you say, wow, Jesus instituted the sacrifice of the New Covenant at the Last Supper, and then you just move on. So, okay, let's find some more evidence for the sacrifice of the Mass. But if you stop to read, you find out that the sacrifice they were saying Jesus instituted at the Last Supper was when he gave thanks to his father. Hmm. He, he thanked his father and, and offered, and, and in fact, offered a hymn to him. Uh, in fact, I, I found it quite interesting in Justin Martyr. At one point, he talks about the sacrifice of the Mass. I'm sorry, I didn't talk about the sacrifice of the Mass. He talks about this sacrifice that was instituted. And may, when he re refers to it, he, he talks about Offering hymns to God is what we offer as sacrifice, and we learned this from Christ Himself. Well, if you study the New Testament, the only place in the New Testament where Jesus offers a hymn to His Father, it's right after the Lord's Supper is is complete, and He 
they offer, they sing a hymn to God. Now, if Jesus Christ taught us to offer hymns to God as the sacrifice of the new covenant. It was it was after the new, the, the Lord's Supper was already complete, and and he he had, was leaving. Now, if he if Justin Martyr wanted to show that Jesus had taught us the new sacrifice, it was the Lord's Supper. You know, it, it should have been, you know, he 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 transubstantiated the bread and sacrificed himself to God as a sacrifice in the new covenant. But what you find in the end is when Justin Martyr just really comes down to it, he says, you know what? I admit the only thing we offer to God is thanks and prayers and hymns. That's it. It's not bread and wine. It's not transubstantiated bread and wine. It's a, it's it's the it's the hymns of Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Now I, I will say that, and this is very important in our first episode, that Philippians four eighteen talks about providing for the needs of the saints as as part of the sacrifice of the new covenant, because Paul himself talks about that providing for each other's physical needs is a sweet a sweet odor and a sweet and acceptable sacrifice to God. <clears throat> now, if you think about this sacrifice of incense, caring for one another, showing our love for one another by providing for each other's physical needs, that the, the early church, when they would gather, everybody would bring their, their extra stuff. You know, they had extra bread, they had extra grapes, they had extra wine, they had extra chickens. Uh, you know, they, they would bring it, and from among all those gifts that were brought, they would then grab some wine, grab some bread, offer thanks to God, and then distribute the bread and wine as part of the, the memorial meal of the Lord's Supper. And so sometimes there are references in the church fathers to bread and wine being part of the sacrifice, but it's always in the context of Philippians 4.18. In fact, Irenaeus says that explicitly when he talks about Malachi 1.11. So the, the important thing is that we look back to the to the early church just just by way of examination to challenge the uh, the conclusions of Roman Catholicism. And what do we find? We find that they're offering sacrifices constantly, but it's the nature of the sacrifice that that, that corrects Roman Catholicism and actually should encourage us, because when they talk about offering sacrifices in the New Covenant, it's always in accordance with what we read in the New Testament. Romans twelve one. Philippians 4.18, Hebrews 13, 15 and 16, 1 Peter 2.5, Revelation chapter 8, Revelation chapter 5. There's references in there about sweet incense, you know, the incense is given the prayers of the saints. And that's what they thought was the fulfillment of Malachi 1, 10 and 11. And what you don't find until the end of the fourth century is actually turning the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ and offering it as a sacrifice to God for sins. And we'll get there. We're going to get there by the end of this episode today. So. Okay, great. Let's uh, let's um, yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. I think that's I think that's excellent. Um, let's just go ahead and uh, get into it then. I'll let you. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I may interject with a question or two. But, okay. So, so just okay. just keep keep an eye on me if I'm if I start waving my hand. Uh, but. Uh, I'll let you go ahead and take the floor, and we'll just go from there. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, for providing this as a platform. It's it's a pleasure to be a participant contributor to the Bible Country Wing Network and uh, Semper Reformanda Radio. And uh, again, I want to remind everybody as we get into this, the intent of this survey of the early church is not to find out what we ought to believe, but to rebut the Roman Catholic argument in 
history, but the mass goes all the way back to the apostles. The early church fathers are not a source of revelation to us, but they're very, it's very instructional from, strictly from an academic standpoint, to find that what they were teaching is not what Roman Catholics say they were. So let's start, our very first one, we actually mentioned this in the first episode, is the Didache. And the Didache actually comes from the first word in the title, Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which is an authentic document from the early church which just is intended to summarize the teaching. And remember last time we talked about it, when they when they went through the liturgy of the Lord's Supper, there was no mention of invoking the Holy Spirit or any transubstantiation at all. The only thing they talked about, take the cup, offer thanks to God. Take the bread, offer thanks to God. And it was all about offering thanks. So the, the Roman Catholic argument from the Didache is going to be uh, from the 14th chapter. And this is what the 14th chapter says. It says, assemble on the Lord's day, break bread, and offer the Eucharist. But first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. Okay, so so here we read that we should break bread and offer the Eucharist. But first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. Roman Catholics want us to take this and say, well, this obviously is the sacrifice of the Mass because in that same chapter, the, the, the Didache goes on. It says, for this is the offering of which the Lord has said, everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of the nations. And that's, that's quoted from Malachi 1.11. Now, let's, let's explore what's being said because it doesn't explicitly say break bread and then offer that bread to the Lord as a sacrifice. Now, when we... This is, that, that's from the chapter 14 of the Didache, but let's go back to chapter 4. It says, In the church you shall acknowledge your transgressions, and you shall not come near for your prayer with an evil conscience. You confess your sins and your faults, so that when you come forward for your prayer, it's not with an evil conscience. The sacrifice that's being discussed here is the same as what we find in the other church fathers. It's a sacrifice of prayer, and we'll, we'll hear that confirmed with some of the other... Uh, or other early writers later. But what we don't find in the Didache is a reference explicitly to the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice of bread and wine to God for sins. It says, confess your faults so your sacrifice may be a pure one. But back in the fourth chapter, it already made clear that what you're offering when you come forward is your prayer and you want to acknowledge your transgression so you don't offer your prayer with your intentions. Does that make sense? It does. I, I just I have a... I have a a question, and I think it's kind of silly just to ask this, but uh, I'm I'm looking at your notes. I, I have them on my phone. What and, and just from being in you know college classrooms, whenever somebody says a word, it's like, how do you spell that? And what you know, what is that? So you said Didache. Is that a person? <laughs> I, I, I so so the Didache is the, the Didache just means teaching, and it okay, comes from the comes from the Greek title of a document called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Okay, so, and so uh, you spell it D-I-D-A-C-H-E, in case anybody's wondering. Yeah. That is, that is Because I, last time we talked about Justin and Irenaeus and all these people, and I'm, I'm looking at your notes, and I'm like, Didache's not a person. It does, it, it's, he has no last name. So <laughs> That's right. That's, you know, that, and I think it's a, it's a great question. Here's the thing. I want you and our listeners to ask questions like that because – we don't need to be afraid of the early church fathers. 
that again, scripture is the sole source of our revelation. All we find in the early church is that it believed the same thing that we do. That it, it, when it comes to the, the, how you celebrate the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the wine were a figure or a symbol of Christ's body and blood. Uh, the sacrifice was not the bread and wine or the body and blood of Christ, but actually praise and giving in prayer. In fact, you know, the, what Roman Catholics typically do is that they walk in and say, we pretty much own the early church, and, and, and Protestants will sometimes answer as if church history starts in the 16th century. But let's, let's go back to where it actually started, and let's read what the early church was doing. And what we find is that they're <laughs> acting like Protestants. I mean, we can cover this in other episodes. That, they didn't think that the, the, the bishop of Rome was the guy that was in charge of everything. They didn't venerate, uh, they didn't bow down to or venerate relics. They didn't offer the sacrifice to the mass. They thought that Mary was sinful. They didn't pray for the dead, you know. So you go back to the church, you find out, oh my goodness, they, they're actually they're actually like us. Right. The, the one area where, where Roman Catholics will make their case is that, yeah, but look at all the sacrifices they offer. Well, it turns out that the sacrifices they were offering it was exactly the ones that we would agree with because that's what the scripture prescribes. When we thank God for what he's done for us, we offer to him the sacrifices well pleasing. We thank you, Lord, for what you did for us, saving us by dying in our place on the cross right. and rising from the dead. When we, when we have extra food left over from the provisions that God has given us and we give it to our neighbors and we celebrate, have them over and feed them, Making no regard for whether or not they can ever pay us back. It's a sacrifice, well pleasing to God, because we, it's we're thanking God by giving what He's given to us and distributing it to, to people that are in need. That's a sacrifice of praise, and that's how the early church looked at it. So the the key here, we go back to the early church. It's not something we need to be afraid of. Don't even worry about the pronunciation. It's the it's the it's, it's actually the text that really matters when you explore what they're actually saying. Don't be you know, in other words, to our listeners, don't be afraid of the early church because the Roman Catholics want you to think that they own it. <laughs> well, they don't. I'm sorry. Yeah. They don't own it. Now, they own it from the 4th century on. I'll grant you that because <laughs> the end of the 4th century, it, yep, sacrifice of the Mass. Yeah. Perpetual virginity, Mary sinless, you know, veneration right. you know, Sure, that's all yours, but it's not well, the scripture. It's not well, what the early church thought. Even that, because uh, I mean, I'm just going to throw out a comment. Uh, the, the doctrines of Mary have progressed. All the way up until the 19th century. So, uh, if if you want to believe that that Mary had a bodily ascension into heaven, none. Of, I mean, that that's absent from most of church history. Uh, and so, you know, I, I I yeah, I really appreciate you letting me ask questions and uh, just for clarification because we are using words and terminology that I think a lot of people, including myself, aren't too familiar with. Um, but wouldn't wouldn't you say that that all of this this uh, we're we're placing this in the in the late fourth century, and all of this sort of came about because of what Constantine did. He made the the church the official uh, state religion, and that this allowed for all of the uh, th this allowed for changes to be to be made for. Uh, for heresies to to flourish, um, is that is that like right after Constantine? That that's really when we start to see things progress and change and and develop as 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 into what we now know as Roman Catholicism today. And, and really, it hasn't stopped uh, 
evolving and changing. And I mean, they, uh, like you said about, about the doctrines of Mary, uh, I think that I covered, uh, this in, a, in another episode, but the doctrines of Mary have, have progressively changed over the, over the centuries through the apparitions. And so is that, I mean, is that right? It, it, it's right after the, the, the time of Constantine. Well, the, the, uh, the transition I would place, it's in the latter half of the fourth century. Constantine was from the first half of the first century. So we're, we're, we're fine. We're going to actually get to the age of Constantine in today's episode. Episode We'll cover Eusebius, Octantius, and uh, the Council of Nicaea. And we'll find that the Council of Nicaea, which was, uh, which was convened by Constantine, still did not have them offering the sacrifice of the Mass. And we find all the way through Athanasius in 373, Still, the sacrifice of Malachi 1.11 is actually praise and prayer and thanksgiving. It's still not the sacrifice of the Mass. So Constantine you know, died well before the middle of the 4th century, and it's really not to the latter part of the 4th century that we see the two doctors on 380. So although I would say that, of course, what Constantine did laid the groundwork, and, and what we could explore in another episode, in fact, how he actually conscripted bishops of the different cities to serve as his uh, adjudicators of civil and ecclesiastical disputes. But every bishop in every province was allowed to do that. Uh, every bishop in every diocese was allowed to do that. And, and, those, and from there would take cases to his court. But that led to a position where bishops ended up hearing arguments and that led to an elevation of bishops and by the latter part of the fourth century, the, the bishops, particularly the metropolitan bishops, which would be the chief bishop of any diocese, ended up having so much power and influence that, that I would say, yes, some of what Constantine did led to it, but I'd say the transition point is still latter part of the fourth century, not necessarily Constantine, which was at the beginning of the fourth century. Right. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that. Let's, uh, okay, then, then I'll let you continue with uh, where you were at. Well, so, so we covered the Didache, and, and, and just, just to make you feel better, when I first started studying this years ago, I, I thought this was the Didache, and I called it the Didache, and I was talking to people about it, yeah, but you know, then, I, then I found out the actual pronunciation. I, I may not even be doing it right, so I still may not be doing it right, but the, the key is that this is what they, the argument they make as well, there's a reference to sacrifice in the Eucharist, it must be a reference to the sacrifice of the Mass, and you find out that it was actually being offered as prayer. Okay, so let's move forward with Clement. And I, I call him Pope Clement in, in quotation marks because Roman Catholics call him Pope, but he was the Bishop of Rome, and he wrote a letter to the Corinthians. And this is about uh, 99 AD. So the Roman Catholic argument goes like this. This is from chapter 44, verses 4 to 5 of Clement's letter to the Corinthians. And uh, actually, I think, yeah, this one, I think he died in 99 AD, but the letter was probably from about 80 the eighth decade of the first century. And it says, Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who have blamelessly and holily offered sacrifices. Now, the context here is that the Corinthians had kicked out a bishop and some presbyters actually kicked out some presbyters. And and Clement is writing to them saying that you shouldn't do that. They have been blameless in what they've been doing. Now, the Roman Catholic argument is that they have blamelessly and holily offered the sacrifices of the Episcopal. So, now, that, 
that's the first point I want to make is that it's not actually what the original text says. It says our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who have blamelessly and holily brought forward the gifts. Now, the word for gifts here is the same one that's used in Luke 21, 1-4 with the widow's might. And what's being mentioned here is the gifts for the poor. And keep in mind that in, in Philippians 4.18, taking care of the poor is called a well-pleasing sacrifice. And all that's being said here is that we, you can't kick out guys from the bishop, you know, men from the bishop uh, for, as presbyters or from the episcopate who have done a good job and they haven't been unfaithful in the administration of the gifts that are brought for the poor. And the context is that, the, that they've been faithful in the collection for the poor without defrauding anyone. And I'll just, for example, you know, Acts 20, verses Verse 33, where Paul was talking to the, the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, and he said, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Or 2 Corinthians 12, 17, did I make gain of you by any of them who, who I sent to you? I, I didn't get rich from you guys, and I haven't defrauded you. And that's the context of, of, of Clement's letter to the Corinthians. It's not talking about, hey, you can't kick out guys who've been offering the sacrifice of the Mass. It's just talking about you, you, you can't kick out these guys who've been blameless in their administration of their gifts. And that's really what it says in the original text. The second thing is that when Clement actually speaks of a sacrifice, he speaks of a sacrifice of praise. This also is from the same letter. It's chapter 50. He says, The Lord, brethren, stands in need of nothing, and he desires nothing from anyone except that confession be made to him. For, says the elect David, I will, not, I will confess it to the Lord, and that will please him more than a young bullock that is with horns and a hook. Uh, let the poor see it and be glad. And again, he says, offer to God the sacrifice of praise and pay your own vows to the Most High. And call upon me in your day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. For the sacrifice of God is a broken spirit. So when Clement actually speaks of the sacrifice, what does he talk about? Praise, contrition, a broken spirit. When he talks about kicking out elders who have been blameless in their duties, he's talking about bringing forward the gifts and not defrauding anybody. We're still not, we still don't have a sacrifice of the mass. So, so let's move on to Ignatius of Antioch. He died around 107 AD, so his, his letters can be dated around that time. And I want to spend a little bit more time with Ignatius of Antioch, because Catholics rely so heavily on him. And I want to give you an example. Um, when Ignatius was speaking of heretics who denied that Jesus came in the flesh, suffered in the flesh, and rose again bodily, and ascended bodily to heaven, he wrote of them, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. Okay, so that's to the Smyrnaeans, chapter 7. Spiritually writing to the saints at Smyrna, the same place that Polycarp was from. You were the bishop there. So, what you know, I've written about this, and I would encourage people who want to explore Ignatius a little bit further. Uh, the Roman Catholics put that forward and say, well, obviously Ignatius believed in transubstantiation because he's criticizing the heretics who don't believe that the Eucharist is the flesh of Jesus Christ. But I want to encourage people to explore Ignatius, and it's it's um. It's an article I wrote called Eating Ignatius, and it's intentionally metaphorical because Ignatius was extremely flowery in his 
language and he spoke in metaphors even when the metaphors just made his language even more confusing uh, but but i want to just give you an illustration of how he uses metaphors and in his letter to the trallians he said wherefore clothing yourselves with meekness be renewed in faith that is the flesh of the lord and in love that is the blood of jesus christ that's to the trallians chapter eight so here we have uh, Ignatius of Antioch saying that faith is literally the flesh of Christ and that love is literally the blood of Christ. Well, of course he's not saying that. He's extremely metaphorical in the way he spoke. And when a man speaks in metaphors constantly, you can't use his language to prove the literal transubstantiation of bread and wine. It's just not something you can do. But there's something more important that I want to talk about with Ignatius. And again, I would encourage our listeners to go and look at that article called Eating Ignatius. It's on, uh, it's on my blog at whitepostblog.com. So it's just not the slam dunk case that Roman Catholics make it out to be. So let's talk about the sacrifice of the Mass. And, and this will become more clear when we explore Ignatius's view of the altar on which sacrifices are offered. So the Roman Catholic argument is basically from uh, his letter to the Philadelphians, chapter 4. And it says, make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist. For there is but one body of our Lord, Jesus Christ, but one cup of union with his blood, and one single altar of sacrifice, even as there is also but one bishop with his clergy. So the Catholic uh, ap apologists' support from Ignatius is that Ignatius said, Observe one common Eucharist, for there's one body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one cup of union with his blood, and one single altar of sacrifice. Well, let me first say that this translation from Roman Catholics is gratuitous and that it inserts an extra sacrifice because the actual text doesn't refer specifically to a sacrifice. It just says that there is one single altar. And I don't know of any Protestants who reject the idea that there is an altar mentioned in the New Testament, and it's an altar in which we gather around, and there are people that are not worthy to gather around that altar. But the question is, what is offered on that altar? That's really what it comes down to. Did Ignatius say that what is offered on the altar is Christ's body and blood for our sins? So let's look, let's look at what he actually says. First of all, when Ignatius refers to the bread and wine, it is for our use, for he instructs the people to use one Eucharist. When you go back and look at the original language, it says, use one Eucharist. And, and where the Catholics had quoted it to say, make sure that you observe one common Eucharist. If you read that chapter in the original language, and, and actually this is from Philip Schaff's translation, who's a Protestant, but go back and look at what it actually says. When he speaks about the Eucharist being bread and wine, he says, use one Eucharist, because the bread and wine is for our use. But when the Eucharist refers to thanksgiving and praise, it is only offered to God. And I'll quote this from his letter to the Ephesians. He says, this is chapter 13, Take heed then, often, to come together to give thanks to God and show forth his praise. Well, that where he says give thanks, that's the Greek word Eucharistia. So when the Eucharist refers to bread and wine, it's for us to use. When the Eucharist refers to Thanksgiving, it's offered to God. So That's you never have in Ignatius 
the Eucharist being offered to God when it's in reference to the bread and wine. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that, that's funny because I'm looking at, I'm following you on, on your notes, and you said uh, that Greek word is Eucharista. And I was, yes. I was reading before that, and I was like, what is that Greek word right there? That is, it's, yeah, I, I, don't read, I, I don't read Greek, so I, I didn't. So, so, you know, what you find, though, is that here, here we had a reference to sacrifice and an altar and the Eucharist and Roman Catholic say, okay, sacrifice of the Mass, it's a slam dunk. But when you go through and you look at it, when, you, when the Eucharist refers to bread and wine, it's for our use. When the Eucharist is offered to God, it's in reference to thanks and praise. And, and that's an important distinction to make because that's not what we were told in the sacrifice challenge, you know. All the well, holy thoughts and fathers always referred to the sacrifice of the Mass. Yeah, and, and I can I can see how that would be that that would trip people up because when I first when I first read the first part of that, what what the Catholic uh, what the Catholics put forth with regards to um, this uh, Ignatius of Antioch, to me it sounded it sounded like it supported their view. Yeah, on, on the first reading it does, and that's why I say, hey. Uh, it's not hate, it's history. Let's go, let's right. go through look, look, look through this. And so I would encourage Roman Catholics, instead of bashing uh, the Bible Company Network and Separate Reform on the radio, I would encourage them to invest some time and study the historical record. <laughs> so that's kind right. of tongue-in-cheek out there. So listen, this is not about hating anybody. <laughs> it's simply about what the historical record says. Right. And, and what's important here is we've talked about the Eucharist. We've talked about when, when, the, when the Eucharist refers to bread and wine. For our use of the Eucharist, of course, it's given praise. That's when it's offered to God. And, and but let's talk about the altar. It's very important for us to now understand all the different ways that whenever Ignatius explicitly says what's being offered on the altar, it's never anything but a pure conscience, prayer, or himself as a martyr, in accordance with Romans 12:1. So, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter five. He said, if anyone be not within the altar, he's deprived of the bread of God. True enough, you're not within the altar, you're deprived of the bread of God. But listen, he says, for if the prayer of one or two possesses such power, how much more that of the bishop and the whole church? He, therefore, that does not assemble with the church, has even by this manifested his pride. So you get together for an altar, and you're, you're deprived of the bread of God by not joining. But what gets offered? Prayer. In the prayer of the church is what gets altered in that context. It doesn't say that the bread is being altered. If you don't come to the altar, you're deprived of the bread of God. But what you don't offer, what, what you also don't participate in, is the actual offering of prayer to God. So here we have a reference to an altar, what's being offered is prayer. So let's go to Ignatius of Antioch, his letter to the Magnesians, chapter 7. But being come together into the same place, let there be one prayer, one supplication, one mind, one hope, love and joy undefiled. There is one Jesus Christ than whom nothing is more excellent. Therefore, run together as to one temple, as into one temple of God, as to one altar, as to one Jesus Christ. So what is it? what was his admonition? Let there be one prayer, one supplication, one mind, one hope, and love and joy. So what's being offered on the altar? Prayer, supplication, a mind, a hope, a love, a joy is being offered to God on the altar as the sacrifice of praise. So in his letter to the Trailers, chapter 7, he that is within the altar is pure, but he that is without is not pure. That is, he who does anything apart from the bishop and the presbytery and deacons, such a man is not pure in his conscience. <laughs> so, 
So here we are at Hippoki. What's being offered here? When we talk about an altar in Ignatius, prayer, supplication, praise, a pure conscience, you know, in, our, in, in, in one mind, one hope, the unity of the church is being offered to God in the sacrifice of praise, right? So, so these are all the references. That's it. That's all the references to altar, except one last one in this letter to the Romans. He says, pray then, do not seek to confer any greater favor upon me than that I be sacrificed to God while the altar is still prepared. This is, this is Ignatius. These are all the references to Ignatius where it's clear what's being offered. And, and so we have to go to Ignatius, not, not to Rome. We have to go to Antioch and find out what did Ignatius mean. And in the context of his letters, what gets offered on the altar when the church comes together is prayer, supplication, praise, or in his case, himself as a martyr. But what you don't have is bread being transubstantiated and then offered to God as a sacrifice. So, so that's, 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 there's a lot more to be said about Ignatius, and again, I would encourage people to go to the, to the blog and read Eating Ignatius would be a good place to start. But he's also mentioned a lot of this that I discovered is mentioned in our series. Uh, their praise was their sacrifice. But here I wanted to move on to uh, to Hippolytus uh, because we, we've covered Justin Martyr. Uh, we covered him significantly last week. And we covered Irenaeus as well. And I want to go to Hippolytus. Um, but first let me ask, is, are, are, you, are, are you tracking with me so far? Yeah, I definitely am. Um, um, I saw that in your notes uh, you have Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, but... We, we did cover those last time. So uh, Hippolytus is now we're moving on to the 235 AD. Yes, yes. So he's a, he was a bishop in, in the provinces that were uh, near Rome. He wasn't a bishop of Rome. Okay. But this is what something, this is from something, uh, it was actually from Hippolytus' era. There are some that say that this is from Hippolytus himself and others that say it's not, but it's not. The genuineness is the question. The question is, was it really from Hippolytus? I've read arguments either way, but there's something that's really important here, and that is <clears throat> Hippolytus is talking about what's going to be happening at the end of the world when Antichrist reigns and basically the church is oppressed. And he says that basically oblation and incense will cease, but the body and blood of Christ will no longer be shown. And that's important because if there was ever a time to say that oblation and incense will you know, to, to basically support the sacrifice of the mass, it's right here when he says, hey, when the church is oppressed in the end times, the sacrifice of the mass is going to stop. But instead, he simply says the body and blood will no longer be shown. He doesn't say it will cease to be offered. What's important here is remember we talked about last week with Irenaeus a little bit at the beginning of this episode is that Irenaeus talked about the oblation of the new covenant being complete and only then is the Holy Spirit invoked so that the symbols of the body and blood may be exhibited to the people that are present. And that's how the church looked at the elements of the Lord's Supper. They were figurative, they were symbolic, they were representative of what Christ had done. And they were to stimulate our minds to remember what Christ had done by the fact that solid food reminds us of his flesh, slain for us, the liquid food so reminds us of his blood shed for us. And here we have something from Hippolytus, and he doesn't touch on Malachi 1.11, but I thought it was worth looking at because 
there's an oblique reference here, which I'd just say just it's kind of an like indirect reference to Malachi 111 in Revelation of Incense, because that's what Malachi 111 said the Gentiles would do, would offer oblation of incense that is acceptable to God. So this is what Hippolytus or the pseudo-Hippolytus said regarding the end of the world, chapter 34. And the churches too will wail with a mighty lamentation because neither oblation nor incense is attended to, nor a service acceptable to God. I'm going to stop there for just a second because the service that's acceptable to God is defined for us in the New Testament. Romans 12.1, Philippians 4.18, Hebrews 13.15, and 1 Peter 2.5. Is it? But then he goes on. He says, but the sanctuaries of the churches will become like garden watchers, like a garden watcher's hut, and the holy body and blood of Christ will not be shown in those days. I'm going to stop again here. Because he doesn't say the holy body and blood of Christ will not be offered in those days. He just talks about it being shown. But then he continues and he says, the public service of God shall be extinguished. Psalmody shall cease. The reading of the scriptures shall not be heard. So the public service of God is the acceptable sacrifice to God, which the public service is psalmody. But that's a reference to psalms and singing and praise. What's so important here is, again, what we notice is that the clear categories that the early church maintained. I don't know Protestants who don't look at the bread and wine as symbols of the body and blood of Christ and show them to each other as they are administering them. And I even know Protestants who say this is the body and blood of Christ when they administer it. Because they have already, everybody knows that we're talking symbolically, it represents. It's a figure of his body and blood. But what's important here for this pseudo-hypologist or hypologist, depending on which way you go on that, is it doesn't say that holy body and blood will cease to be offered in the days. It says it will not be shown. In psalmody is the public service of God that he referred to at the beginning when he said, neither oblation nor incense is attended to, nor a service acceptable to God. It's the singing and the praise that is the sacrifice, while the body and blood of Christ and its symbolic elements, as he indicated in fragment 37, they're just symbolic. They will no longer be exhibited or shown. So actually that was, I'm sorry, that was, I, I actually referred to Irenaeus, who was in fragment 37, talked about exhibiting the, uh, the sacrifice instead of offering it. And here uh, we have Hippolytus making similar reference to that as the holy body and blood of Christ are exhibited, but not offered. So uh, we'll move forward to Tertullian, and that's in 240 AD. Now, he died in 240 AD, and that gives us uh, some context for for the time frame. And just by just very quickly, I just want to cover this. When he was talking about Malachi 1 verses 10 to 11, he said, "In every place, sacrifice shall be offered unto my name." And your offerings, such as the ascription of glory and blessing and praise and hymns, and again in against Martian book four, chapter one, and in every place a sacrifice is offered into my name, even a pure offering, meaning simple prayer from a pure conscience. Now, what you're noticing so far, I hope, is that this idea that we offer a pure mind, a pure conscience, in, in, in dwelling on, on good thoughts, studying the scripture, and the uh, caring for each other and offering praise and thanksgiving to God, that that's our thanksgiving, that's our sacrifice, just the sweet-smelling aroma, the incense, the acceptable, well-pleasing sacrifice to God that the Holy Church offered, but you still don't have a sacrifice of the Mass. And we uh, we go forward to origin now. This is uh, from 253 AD. 
And what we notice is that in, that in origin, the Lord's Supper, when he describes the Lord's Supper, bread is received by man, but what is sacrificed to God is prayer and praise on the altar of the heart. This is from his work against Celsus, book 8, chapter 33. But we give thanks to the creator of all, and along with thanksgiving and prayer for the blessings we've received, we also eat the bread presented to us. And this bread becomes by prayer a sacred body which sanctifies those who sincerely partake of it. But the, that Roman Catholics will camp on that and say, by prayer it becomes a sacred body which sanctifies those who sincerely partake of it. But that's it's very similar to what Irenaeus said. And Irenaeus said that you know, they're, they're symbols, but it is a blessing to those who eat them in faith. But what's important in this particular citation from Origen is that he says, when we get together, we give thanks to the Creator. We get that. So what's offered to God is thanks. And what's offered to man is bread. We still don't have the sacrifice of the mass that the Dewey Catechism promised us if we went back and looked at the, all the holy popes and early church fathers and councils. So when Origen actually speaks of Malachi 1.11, he says the sacrifice of praise and prayer is offered on the altar of the heart. This is from his homilies on Genesis, homily 13, chapter 3. He taught us that we might not seek God in some one place, but might know that sacrifice is offered to his name in every land. God therefore dwells neither in a place nor in a land, but he dwells in the heart. And if you are seeking the place of God, a pure heart is his place. So here at Origin, is talking about the sacrifice of Malachi 1.11. He says, don't look for him in a, in a building. For it in the heart. And then in his homilies on Exodus, homily 9, chapter 4, he says, Let that soul have further in itself also an immovable altar on which it may offer sacrifices of prayer. And then, when, again, when he's writing against Celsus, book 3, chapters 59 to 60, he invites the repentant to participate in our mysteries. And the invitation is not to offer the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood, but rather to offer sacrifices of praise. And this is what he says. He says, and when those who have been turned toward virtue have made progress and have shown that they have been purified by the word and have led as far as they can a better life, then and not before do we invite them to participate in our mysteries. We say, whoever has clean hands and therefore lifts up holy hands to God and by reason of being occupied with elevated and heavenly things, can say, lifting up my hands is as the evening sacrifice. Let him come to us. And then finally, Origen says something that just completely is incompatible with Roman Catholicism, because he says, listen, all the sacrifices that you guys do, that's according to the law, and the law is dead. He says, but if you wish to be taught how the law is dead, look and see. Where now are the sacrifices? Where now is the altar? Where is the temple? Where are the purifications? Where is the celebration of the Passover? Is not the law dead in all these things? Well, let those friends and defenders of the letter keep the letter of the law if they can. Now, what has what, what Origen said? Sacrifice of Malachi 111, a sacrifice of praise and prayer and holy hands lifted high. And it's offered on the altar of the heart. And we don't do sacrifices in altars anymore unless they're sacrifices on the altar. Prayer and praise on the altar of the heart and the pure conscience of the altar of the heart. Again, this is not what the Dewey Catechism promised us when the sacrifice challenge was, was, was laid down. We go back and we look through the early church fathers and we find that in the early councils, we'll get to, we'll get to Nicaea in just a second. But when they talk about Malachi 111, they're not talking about offering bread and wine to God 
as a sacrifice for sins. If they ever do refer to bread and wine as an offering, it's in the context of Philippians 4.18. But more, more, more generally, the sacrifice of God is not on a physical altar, but rather in an altar of the heart. And sacrifice is not a bull or a goat or anything anything physical or tangible, but actually rather sacrificing prayer, praise, contrition, contrite heart, holy hands lifted high. So, so now we're going to get into the fourth century rule of Lactantius, who died in 325 AD. And here, Malachi is invoked to speak with the sacrifice of the new covenant in his uh, Divine Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 11. Then Lactantius goes on and says, Now let us speak briefly concerning the sacrifice itself. So this is it. This is, this is when we're expecting to read about the sacrifice of the Mass, right? So Lactantius says, Now let us speak briefly concerning the sacrifice itself. <clears throat> In each case, that which is incorporeal must be offered to God, for he accepts this. His offering is innocency of soul, his sacrifice, praise, and hymn. Therefore, the chief ceremonial in the worship of God is praise from the mouth of a just man directed toward God. And that's amazing because we were told, we were told that the apex of Christian worship is the sacrifice of the mass. It is the right. source and summit of the Christian life. And here Lactantius, Lactantius says, the chief ceremonial in the worship of God is praise from the mouth of a just man directed toward God. It's a sacrifice of praise. Again, uh, and I can't emphasize it enough, this isn't hate, it's history. Roman Catholics promised us that if we just go back and look at the early church fathers, early popes and councils, we're going to find sacrifices in the mass everywhere. Well, I'll grant them one thing. We find sacrifices everywhere, but the only ones we find are those that are described. You know what's amazing about this is that everybody's consistent. <laughs> um, and, and the reason that they're consistent is because the early church fathers were drawing this from Scripture. And they're basically all saying the exact same thing over and over, and none of them are saying what Roman Catholics want them to say. But that's exactly right. It's uh, I would say that Roman Catholicism, because it relies so heavily on late fourth century interpretations, backloaded them onto the early references to sacrifices. And, and I'll grant that early early church fathers sometimes made reference to a sacrifice that was instituted at the Lord's Supper, but it takes a little bit of digging to figure out what that sacrifice was. I don't deny that Jesus offered a sacrifice to his Father at the Last Supper. I deny that it was the bread and wine. I deny that it was transubstantiated bread and wine. I believe he offered a sacrifice of praise to his Father when he gave thanks to him. He took right. the cup, blessed it, and gave thanks. And afterward, he sang a hymn. It turns out the early church agreed with that that the hymns and the praise and the thanksgiving is what is offered to God. And if there's ever a case where it's referring to bread and wine, it's always in the context of Philippians 4.18, where we collect our excess goods, thank God for them, and distribute them to the needy. So this is this is such a good lesson. Like I'm really loving this. And and you know, I, I just want to say thank you for doing the the labor and the work that it takes to dig all of this up. It's it's truly impressive because I'm, I'm, you're going to original sources and you're looking at what the original sources said and just the amount of research that this takes is is pretty incredible. I know that you said that you've been writing this or that you've been what is it 20 years now that you've been digging into Roman Catholicism 
Um, yes, but, yes, I would say it's about that long. And so, folks, you are being blessed with a very rich insight that has taken Tim Kaufman 20 years. To, <laughs> it's funny because we have to we, we put out a podcast every week, and this is not just something that you put together last week. This is a in-depth historical study into into these 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 characters from history. So let's uh, let's go ahead and continue. Uh, I think the next one is. You know, I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna try to say the name. But that's okay. The next one is actually the Council of Nicaea. It's that's right. Yeah. Because Lactantius died the year of the Council of Nicaea, and after we're finished with uh, Nicaea, we're going to cover Eusebius, who died in 340 AD, attended the Council of Nicaea. Okay. And and it's important because Roman Catholics would point to the Council of Nicaea and say, "Look, sacrifice for the mass." So, so. Let's, this is why it's important to notice how strictly the early church maintained its categories. Like I said, all the way back to Ignatius of Antioch, when the Eucharist refers to bread and wine, it's offered to men. When the Eucharist is offered to God, it's a reference to thanks and praise, okay? It's so important to recognize that. When, when Irenaeus talks about exhibiting the sacrifice of Christ in the symbolic form to bread and wine, it's after the oblation of the new covenant is already complete. The oblation of the new covenant is complete. Where the Holy Spirit is invoked, which is the exact opposite of what you should do if you're a Roman Catholic. You have to invoke the Holy Spirit first and then offer the sacrifice to the covenant. Um, and, and it's so important for us to maintain those categories and to understand that that's what the church did. The early church did this. Now, the Council of Nicaea, we see the same thing. So let's, let's read the Roman Catholic argument <clears throat> from Canon 18 of the Council of Nicaea. This is a case where uh, deacons were administering the Lord's Supper to presbyters, whereas presbyters were supposed to be administering the Lord's Supper to the deacons. So the Canon 18 corrects that practice. It says, It has come to the knowledge of the Holy and Great Synod that in some districts and cities the deacons administer the Eucharist to the presbyters, whereas neither canon nor custom permits that they who have no right to offer the Eucharistic sacrifice should give it, should give the body of Christ to them that do offer it. Now, I want to just say at the outset that what I said was a Roman Catholic interpretation of Canon 18. Canon 18 doesn't actually talk about offering the Eucharistic sacrifice, and it doesn't talk about offering the body and blood of Christ. What's very interesting in canon, in all the canons of Nicaea, is that the word offer never has a direct object except when it's in reference to prayers. The Lord's Supper, when it is the direct offer of a verb, direct object of a verb, it is when it is given to men. So in canon 18, the Eucharist is given to men. And in Canon 20, what is offered to God is prayer. But you never have a canon at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD that says that the Eucharist, as bread and wine, is offered to God. When it does say that the deacons and the presbyters, or the presbyters offer, it doesn't say what they offer. Until you get to Canon 20, and it talks about what is being offered to God is prayer. And I would encourage people to go through all the canons of, of the Council of Nicaea. There's only 20 of them. And just read what it says 
about offering. The only time that the word offer ever has a direct object is when it is in reference to prayer. And the only time that the Eucharist has a direct, is the direct object of a verb is when the Eucharist is being given to men. Again, maintaining the strict categories. And we can walk through all the canons of Nicaea. I think that it would take a little bit more time than we want to spend on it right now. I would just want to encourage people to, to read what the canons actually say. And, uh, and I'm going to read the canon of canon 18, the way it's translated in, in, uh, in uh, Philip Schaff's uh, translation. And here you, you don't have the gratuitous insertion of meaning and interpolation that is done by Roman Catholics. It says, it has come to the attention of this holy and great synod that in some places the cities be give communion to presbyters, even though neither canon nor custom allows this. Namely, that those who have no authority to offer should give the body Christ to those who do offer it. Notice it never says those who have no authority to offer the body and blood of Christ to give the body of Christ, body and blood of Christ to those who do offer the body and blood of Christ. That that has to be interpolated into the canon by the Roman Catholic apologists to get canon 18 to make the body and blood of Christ the direct object of the verb to offer. But again, I'll just emphasize the only time that the word offer ever has direct object in any of the canons of the Council of Nicaea is when prayer is offered, and the body and blood of Christ is never offered in any of the canons. It has to be read into it just the way the Roman Catholics have been reading the same thing to the early church for centuries. They always have to read it in because it doesn't say it explicitly. But what we do find when we dig into this is that when the early church councils, the early church fathers, and writers, and popes, I'll even say, referring to Clement, uh, when they talk about Malachi 111, it's always about praise, prayer, sacrifice, prison sacrifice, or, or providing for the needs of the poor. So let's let's move on to Eusebius, who died in 340 A.D. He's he's uh, quoting Malachi 111. He's talking about the fulfillment of Malachi 111. And 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 what I want, what I want to get to here is that Roman Catholics will often say, "Oh yes, they offered praise and thanksgiving as a sacrifice to God," but in Roman Catholicism, it's not either or; it's both and. And 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 I want to give an example of why that's so inconsistent with what the early Church taught. Uh, it's not both a sacrifice of praise and prayer and the body and blood of Christ. It's just praise and prayer. It's, and, and this is what we read from Eusebius, who, who was there at Council of Nicaea. And he says, and this is from uh, proof, his demonstration of the gospel, book one, chapter 10, the proof of the gospel. And uh, he says, we sacrifice, therefore, to Almighty God, the sacrifice of praise. We sacrifice the divine and holy and sacred offering. We sacrifice a new according to the new covenant, the pure sacrifice. But the sacrifice to God is called a contrite heart, a humble and contrite heart that will not despise. Yes, we offer the incense of the prophet in every place, bringing to him the sweet-smelling fruit of the sincere word of God, offering it in our prayers to him. Yet this, yet another prophet teaches, who says, let my prayer be its incense in thy sight, quoting Psalms 14.92. Then, in, uh, also from Proof of the Gospel, Book 1, Chapter 6, he says, By the incense and offering to be offered to God in every place, what else can he mean 
but that no longer in Jerusalem nor exclusively in that sacred place, but in every land and among all nations, they will offer to the supreme God the incense of prayer and the sacrifice called pure, because it is not a sacrifice of blood, but of good works. <laughs> now that's an amazing statement because we were expecting both and. We thought we we're going to get to finally get to a church fathers and say it's both praise and blood. But but here what is he talking? He says it's it's prayers or incense or praise the sacrifice. Um, it's called pure because it's not a sacrifice of blood but of good works, which is consistent with Romans twelve one. Our bodies a living sacrifice. This this is not what we were told we were going to find when we took up the sacrifice challenge. We have an explicit denial that it's a sacrifice of blood, <laughs> but in fact, it's a sacrifice consistent with one. So, it, I think that we, you know, we can move to after I had a Persia who died in 345 AD, and this is from Demonstration 12 on the Passover, Chapter 6. We covered this in our last episode, but it's worth revisiting just to show that here we are at the midpoint of the fourth century, and we still don't have a sacrifice of the mass. And uh, this is after had. Persian sage saying, Our Savior ate the Passover sacrifice with his disciples during the night watch of the 14th. He offered this to his disciples as the sign of the true Passover sacrifice. So here we're still talking about this, the, the sacrifice. Uh, Jesus ate the Passover sacrifice with his uh, disciples and offered it to them as the sign of the true Passover sacrifice. He didn't say he ate the sacrifice and then offered his body and blood. To God, the, the sign is the basically it's like the symbol, the, the figure. The what did he offer to his disciples? So this is a symbol of the true mm -hmm. sacrifice. Okay, and then in uh, in demonstration in the in let's see, where is which, uh, I think we quoted the demonstration that we had last time. Okay, so it says here concerning the strength of pure prayer. This also is from uh, demonstrate from. Uh, his demonstration on the Passover. Here concerning the strength of pure prayer, and see how our righteous fathers were renowned for their prayer before God, and how prayer was for them a pure offering. Observe, my friend, that sacrifices and offerings have been rejected, and that prayer has been chosen instead. So notice here in Ephrahat, the Persian sage, mid fourth century, about 345 AD, he says, offerings and sacrifices have been rejected, and prayer has been chosen instead. So when bread is given to men, it's a sign of the Passover sacrifice, but what is offered to God is prayer. Again, maintaining these categorical distinctions. So then we finally get to Athanasius of Alexandria. He died around 373 AD. This is from his, uh, from his letters. This is letter 11, paragraphs 11 to 12. And again, he tells us what Malachi 111 is. He said, the sacrifice is not offered in one place, but in every nation, incense and a pure sacrifice is offered unto God. So when in like manner from all in every place, praise and prayer shall ascend to the gracious and good Father, then the whole Catholic Church, which is in every place, with gladness and rejoicing, celebrates together the same worship of God, when all men in common send up a song of praise and say amen. So so this is, we're, we're the latter part of the fourth century, and you know I don't object at all to his reference to the Catholic Church, because the Catholic just means universal. And, then, and that is what they called the church back then. It was the Catholic Church. That there's this church, and it's everywhere. And they knew that. They also knew that their chief shepherd was not in Rome, but in heaven. And it wasn't until the latter part of the fourth century that Roman Catholicism was born, which is uh, 
a, a Catholicism that was centered on a single bishop in, in the city of Rome. Again, we can cover that in another episode, but here we have Athanasius of Alexandria saying, okay, I'll tell you what the sacrifice of the Mass is. I mean, I'll tell you what the sacrifice of Malachi 1.11 is. It's praise and prayer in when all men in hell and set up a song of praise. Uh, we were told by the Dewey Catechism that if we would just go back and explore all the early popes and councils and fathers of the early church that would all testify that the sacrifice of Malachi 1.11 was the bread and wine transubstantiated for the mass and offered to God as the body and blood of Christ. Well, that's not it, true. It's not true at all. And it's a complete rewriting of history. So the question is, and this is really what, where we've been wanting to get to since we first started talking about this, is when did it happen? Well, this is from 382 AD, and it's Gregory of Nyssa. And what happened is that Gregory of Nyssa was trying to figure out if Jesus died on Friday, night or Friday afternoon and he rose from the dead on Sunday morning how do you count for the three days he was supposed to be in the ground and so he determined that well let, let me say that Afrahat also struggled with that and Afrahat was from 345 AD and one of the ways that Afrahat dealt with that he just said you know when it got dark uh, when, when when it got dark at the crucifixion, that that counted as one night. And then, then it got bright again, and that was another day. And that was how he handled it. But Gregory of Nyssa handled it slightly differently. This is from his oration uh, all called On the Space of Three Days. And what he figured out, and this is what he determined, he said, the only way you can get three days from Jesus' death until Sunday morning is if he was already dead on Thursday night at the, Lord's, at the Last Supper. Okay, this is the beginning of the sacrifice of the mass right here. Okay, this is where it all began. Because up until Athanasius in 373 AD, we're still not finding the sacrifice of the mass. We're finding a lot of close calls. We're finding a lot of things where Roman Catholics say, read this much or no further, or don't explore the context. Don't try to figure out what they're actually saying. And, but what we find is that there's still no sacrifice of the mass as late as 373 AD. So we get to Gregory of Nyssa on the space of three days. And he writes, for the body the victim would not be suitable for eating if it were still alive. So when he made his disciples share in eating his body and drinking his blood, already in secret by the power of the one who ordained the mystery, his body had been ineffably and invisibly sacrificed, and his soul was in those regions in which the authority of the ordainer had stored it. Transversing that place in the heart of the earth, along with the divine power infusing it, he offered himself for us, victim and sacrifice, and priest as well, and Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When did he do this? When he made his own body, food, and his own blood drink for his disciples. For this is this much is clear to, enough to anyone that a sheep cannot be eaten by a man unless its being eaten can be preceded by its being slaughtered. So this is Gregory of Nyssa saying, have the solution finally for those missing three days or for the missing day he must have been dead the night before mysteriously at the last supper when he offered his body and blood as a sacrifice for our sins at the last supper that's that's the beginning of the sacrifice of the mass and and, and gregory of nazianzen in 383 a.d followed on that 
And this is from Division Three of his works, Letter 171. He says, he's writing to a friend, and he talks about his friend, when he is celebrating the Lord's Supper, is actually using his word as a sword to cut Christ's body and blood and offer it as a sacrifice. He says, do then the greater thing in your priestly ministration and loose the great mass of my sins when you lay hold of the sacrifice of resurrection. But most reverend friend, cease not both to pray and to plead for me when you draw down the word by your word, that is, draw down the word, capital W, that is, draw down Jesus, by your word, mm. when with a bloodless cutting you sever the body and blood of the Lord using your voice for the glaive, which is just another word for sword. And then Ambrose of Milan in 389 AD, writing, this is his commentary on the 12 Psalms of David, uh, Psalm 38, paragraph 25. Uh, he says, we saw the prince of priests coming to us. We saw and heard him offering his blood for us. We follow in as much as we are able being priests and we offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. Even if we are of but little merit, still in the sacrifice we are honorable. Even if Christ is not now seen as the one who offers the sacrifice, nevertheless, it is he himself that is offered in the sacrifice here on earth when the body of Christ is offered. Indeed, to offer himself, he is made visible in us. He whose word makes holy the sacrifice that is offered. So, so what, what we've done is that we, we went through 300 years of Christianity and we couldn't find the sacrifice of the mass. We get to the late 4th century, 382 A.D. with Gregory of Nyssa, 383 A.D. with Gregory Nazianzo, and 389 A.D. with Ambrose of Milan. And suddenly, out of nowhere, they're talking about sacrificing Jesus during the Lord's Supper and that Jesus had sacrificed himself at the Lord's Supper. And that's where the sacrifice of the Mass begins. And this is why I wanted to tell our listeners, when Roman Catholics tell you that you need to convert to Roman Catholicism, because they're the ones that have the sacrifice of the Mass that was offered since the days of the Apostles, you need to tell them. Tell them kindly, but tell them the truth. I can't leave the apostolic religion established by Christ and join you in your late 4th century novelties. I refuse to do it. Mm. Early, the early church didn't do it, and I'm not going to do it. And most, most importantly, it's just not in the Bible. Yeah. The Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass is a novelty of the late 4th century. And when you go back and study, just like the Dewey Catechism recommended, go back and look at all the Holy Popes, Councils, and Fathers of the early church. What they are offering to God is a sacrifice. It's praise, prayer, pure mind contrite heart, caring for the needs of the poor in accordance with Philippians 4.18, Romans 12.1, Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16, Revelation 5, Revelation 8. These are the sacrifices that we offer in the spiritual house of God that, that Peter talked about. These are the sacrifices we offer. And this is why it's so important to go back to the very beginning of episode one. It's important for us to examine what sacrifices are prescribed in the New Testament. And then go back and read the early church and see how seriously they took those sacrifices. What you don't find is the sacrifice of the Mass. And I want to conclude on this quote from Maurice de la Taille. And he was writing a book, uh, he wrote a book called The Mystery of Faith. This is from chapter three. It was written in 1915. And Gregory, uh, Maurice de la Taille is really excited of Gregory's, about Gregory's discovery. 
He says that Gregory makes use of this reckoning more remarkably than all the other fathers and finally provides a most appropriate and convincing illustration of our explanation, explanation of the supper. And you know what? I want to tell you something. Is that I don't do this often, but I absolutely 100% agree with Maurice Delatail here. Oh, no. Gregory of Nyssa did make use of this reckoning more remarkably than all the other fathers, and he finally provided a convincing illustration for the Mass. That's right. In the late 4th century, Gregory of Nyssa came up with the sacrifice of the Mass, and Roman Catholicism went with that. But that's not what the early church taught. It's not what the scriptures teach. So the conclusion, you know, for our this two-part series is just that the sacrifice channelings is thrown out there with the assumption that, that, that Christians don't know their right hand from their left and they can't analyze the early church fathers. And Roman Catholics own the early church and we're finally going to come to the conclusion that they've been right all along. When we explore the historical evidence, again, it's not hate, it's history. And I love history. Go back and read this. What you don't find is what the Dewey Catechism promised us what you don't find is what the sacrifice challenge intended for us to find. What we find is the early church offering sacrifices exactly the way the New Testament prescribed, and you don't find the sacrifice of the Mass until the late first century. And that is where the sacrifice of the Mass began, no earlier. So we can conclude on that. And uh, actually, I will, actually, I want to, I want to conclude on something slightly different. Okay. That is, and it's, it's consistent with what we've talked about, is when you go back and you read about what the early church thought about the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper after it has been blessed, what you find in Irenaeus, fragment 37, is that after the bread and wine is blessed, it is exhibited to the people. In Hippolytus, in the end of the world, chapter 34, the blessed elements are shown. In Cyprian, Epistle 62, paragraph 6, paragraph 2, the elements that are consecrated show forth Christ's blood. In Basil of Caesarea, the Spiritus Sancti, or the Holy Spirit, chapter 27, the consecrated elements are displayed and set forth. As uh, Sarah of Jerusalem talks about in his catechetical, catechetical lectures, lecture 23, is the consecrated elements are set forth. And Justin Martyr talked about that they're for the remembrance that is affected by the solid and liquid food so that Christ's suffering is brought to mind. All the way through this, when they do talk about the elements, that is the bread and wine, after they've been blessed, they're not offered to God, but simply displayed so that by the visual recollection we will not forget what Christ did for us. It's mm -hmm. not until Gregory of Nyssa, 382 AD, that the concept is introduced that the consecrated elements becoming the body and blood of Christ are then sacrificed for us by the priest for our sins. It's a late 4th century novelty, and Christians are under no obligation to believe in the sacrifice of the Mass, certainly under no obligation to convert to Roman Catholicism. But I would invite our Roman Catholic listeners to repent of their late 4th century novelties and return to the apostolic church established by Christ. So, I think, I think that's really important, and I, I want to ask a question because... I, I realize that I take a pretty hard stance on some of these things, and a lot of people, they're, they're not, I guess they have a difficulty with some of the things that I say. You know, my pastor said, you know, that he, he had met a priest who, he, it looked as if he was really a, a believer, a true believer. I always 
when we're talking about this, I always tell people that they need to tell their, their friends who they think are professing Christians that they need to come out of the Catholic Church, that they need to not attend the Mass, that they need to not not partake in this. And what would you what would you say to that? I, I mean, if, if you have somebody who's who's saying, well, I know somebody who's who's truly saved. They profess Christ. They really don't worship Mary. They really don't. Um, they don't really understand Eucharistic adoration. They really don't understand the Mass. But they're going to the Roman Catholic um, Church every Sunday. They're partaking in this. What would you? What would you say to them? I mean, it's it's necessary, I think, for them to come out of the Roman Catholic Church and to leave that because this is an abomination in the eyes of God. They're they're, they're distorting what what the Bible actually says, and I, I just I I want to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think it's an important question. It's something that needs to be addressed in the church where. Uh... Even even Protestants we find are ecumenically minded and they don't want to be. They, they're so afraid of being called judgmental or being or, or hateful Catholic pastors that they won't actually just say something that is true. And I'll, I'll let's just say something that is true: that the mass sacrifice is a novelty of the late fourth century, and we've seen from the historical evidence that it just wasn't there until the late fourth century when Gregory of Nyssa tried to figure out those three days and came up with a solution that Jesus must have sacrificed himself. Supper. Before that, the sacrifice that was offered at the supper and at the Last Supper uh, was was praise and prayer, and contrite heart, and caring for the needs of each other in accordance with the New Testament, uh, the New Testament prescriptions for sacrifice. And and I think it's important for us to show from the scriptures that the sacrifice that's offered in the Lord's uh, in the Mass at Roman Catholic churches. Is an invention of the late fourth century. That's not apostolic. And it's not something. It's not scriptural. And it's okay to say that. I, when, when, and it's not hate. It's history. Just, just say the truth out loud. It's not a problem. Right. Um, and and so, so that, when you when you say like that, they need to repent of this fourth century um, novelty. You're you're essentially saying, if if you these these people need to come out of the Roman Catholic Church, that they need to stop attending the Roman Catholic Mass, that they need to stop attending the Roman Catholic uh, services, and stop calling themselves Roman Catholic. It, am I hearing you right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, here's the thing, is that if they truly believe that the, the Mass is a sacrifice that is supposed to be offered, if they really believe that Mary was sinless, really believe that she bodily ascended into heaven. They really believe that we ought to be using incense uh, in our worship. They really believe that we ought to include relics and veneration of relics in our in our worship. They're, they're, they're believing something that came about at the latter part of the fourth century. We could have an episode on relics. We could have an episode on Mary. You know, up, up until the late fourth century, Mary was believed to be sinful. <laughs> and, and that's in the historical record. What you don't find is a consistent or even clear testimony from the early church that she was sinless. And so my, my, my challenge to Roman Catholics is to say, if, you, if it is your intent to remain in a church that originates in the late fourth century, falsely claiming to be apostolic, then, then Roman Catholicism is the place for you to stay. Because if, if it's your intent, 
to stay in a church that has no direct connection to the apostles than stay in Roman Catholicism because they're teaching things that are inconsistent with Scripture and, in fact, inconsistent with the teachings of the Roman Church, if that's what you want to do. But if you want to, to attend a church that is consistent with the apostles' teaching and, in fact, is consistent with the teachings of the early church, go to one that isn't offering a sacrifice in the Mass, doesn't think Mary was sinless, don't think, doesn't think the Pope was the head of the church. And, and the most important thing is to study the Scriptures because when Paul spoke to the elders of Ephesus when he gathered them together at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he says, I commend you to God, to his word. And that is our guide. The shepherd of the church is seated at his father's right hand in heaven. The spirit has been given to us as a guide, his word for our instruction. Jesus shepherds his church well, but the Roman Catholic religion is an imposter claiming to be Christ's representative on earth. And it's imperative that if you want to be consistent with what the apostles taught, read the scriptures, leave Roman Catholicism. But if you stay in Roman Catholicism, but saying, of course, I know that Mary is sinless, and of course, I know that there's no sacrifice in the Mass, and of course, I know we shouldn't worship the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, and of course, I know that the Pope is infallible, he's not the chief shepherd of the church, you're basically saying, of course, I'm not Roman Catholic. Because those are, all, right. those are all Roman Catholic teachings. And so if, if, if right. you're not Roman Catholic, then leave. Right, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and now I want to tell you this, the Roman Catholic apologists feel the same way. Because they're, they're distraught with the Protestantization of Roman Catholicism because they feel like people, popes like Francis, are too ecumenical-minded. They're, they're, too, uh, they're too open in their reception of, of Protestant heretics. And they don't like the fact that there are people in the Catholic Church who don't think Mary is sinless, they don't think that the Pope is the chief shepherd of the Church, they don't think that Rome is the chief metropolis of the Church, and don't think that that uh, that, uh, that you should use incense in, in Mass and that sort of thing. They, they don't want you in there either. So I could say that again, I'll, I'll agree with the Roman Catholic apologist on this point: is that if you don't believe those things, you should leave Roman Catholicism. Right, right, and and my challenge to Bible-believing Christians is that we ought not to be content with those who profess to be Roman Catholic yet believe, uh, like, like you were saying, that believe differently, that we ought to admonish them and encourage them to come out of the Roman Catholic system. And, and I, I just get so frustrated when I hear people say, well, I have family members who are, who are Roman Catholic and they don't believe that Mother Mary was uh, the Immaculate Conception. Well then, you're not you're not Roman Catholic, and and if you should you should recognize that if if your church is teaching these things, and and these things are are that egregious against Scripture, then there's a serious problem. And my my challenge to Bible believing Christians is to hold the line. These are very serious issues. This uh, the the gospels at stake in 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 these issues. If you want to say that Mother Mary is the Immaculate Conception, well, that's that's blasphemous. Christ is the Immaculate Conception, and just for so so our listeners know, uh, Brother Tim is is a full time partner with Semper Reformanda Radio. We are very excited to have him on board because we are going to be exploring these other issues. We're going to be talking about Mother Mary. In uh, in future episodes, we're going to be talking about uh, just 
other stuff that pertains to Roman Catholicism. And our, our desire is not to bash Roman Catholics. Uh, I, I do hate the system. I, I will say that. I hate I hate the system. And if, if Christians – and the, the other thing that I want to just add to that is I'm hoping to do some episodes on – why we believe that that the papacy is a fulfillment of Antichrist, um, that deals with eschatology, and, and so I know that uh, Brother Tim has a lot to say about that. But if 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 you start to recognize Roman Catholicism for what it truly is, that it's truly an Antichrist system, that it's truly an unbiblical, what I would describe as a synagogue of Satan, that that the, the 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 defenders of the Roman Catholic system really are wolves in sheep's clothing. If you if you get a biblical perspective of what Roman Catholicism is, you would not be content with anyone staying in the Roman Catholic system. If I if I saw a priest who was who was professing to be uh, you know, let's say he, he's professing justification by faith alone. He disagrees with the Roman Catholic uh, system of uh, what they teach about Mother Mary. And, and I've heard I've heard Protestants say, well, I, I know a priest who I, I when I looked at him and when I talked to him, I really, you know, I got the, the sense that he really was saved. Well, listen, that that priest needs to not be a priest. He needs to not be uh, a clergy in in a in a system that is completely antichrist. And so my my challenge to Christians is to not be content. See see Roman Catholicism through through a biblical perspective for what it truly is. Uh, to to my Roman Catholic friends, I, I would say, you know, as as Brother Tim Kaufman has said repeatedly, this is not hate; it's history. And not not only that, I want to I want to go a little bit further than that. It's not just not hate, but we're actually doing this out of out of love, out of concern, out of care for those who are entrapped, held captive by human tradition, which is not which is not a, a set in Christ. And we have a desire to reach people for the gospel for Christ, because we we care about people's eternal salvation. And I'm hoping that even even those who disagree with us and disagree with us strongly can at least recognize that this is a labor of love. This is not uh, th this is not an act of hatred towards the individuals who are held captive by this this satanic system. We we use strong words. We use strong terminology: abomination, synagogue of Satan, uh, antichrist, because we want it to be emphatically clear as to what this really is if you were to see a wolf among sheep you're going to you're going to cry wolf you're going to to, to call it for what it is so that nobody is deceived so that nobody so, so that you hear plainly what it truly is uh, so brother Tim I, I want to say thank you for for all the work that you put into this uh, it is it is truly a blessing to, to me I, I know that it's going to be a blessing to our to our listeners 
before we close out, is there anything else that you want to say or add uh, to, to what I said? Yeah, so I'll just leave you with this encouraging story. But um, when I when I wrote the book Quite Contrary about the apparitions of Mary, and basically explained why I believe that the appearances of Mary that occur around the world. I think just for clarification, I'm not talking about Mother Teresa showing up in a cinnamon bun or a, or a discolored window on a skyscraper looking like a Mary. <laughs> I'm talking about actually something showing up claiming to be the mother of Jesus Christ and giving instruction. Those apparitions of Mary are demonic. They are real and they're demonic. They're not figments of people's imagination. And I wrote a book about that. I got a letter from a lady who said that I believe everything you're saying, but I've been a Roman Catholic my whole life and it's too late to change. And uh, I remember being so sad to hear that, that she had actually heard what I was saying and agreed with me and couldn't bring herself to leave. But years later, I got another letter from her. She said, I just couldn't sit there anymore and listen to it. And I found that. And that's, that's truly the fruit that we're trying to bring about. It's not that we're going to tie people up and lasso them and haul them out of the church and say, it's sinful for you to be there. We're preaching the truth. And the Holy Spirit is Christ's representative on earth. And Jesus knows how to shepherd his people. Those who believe the truth will leave on Catholicism. It's, but it's Jesus' job to do it by his spirit. But our ministry is one truth and preaching. And we please that the Lord uh, would use it to his glory and for the salvation of his people. Right. Yeah. And um, okay, so with that, uh, we will close out today's episode. I want to say again, thank you to Tim. Uh, we're going to be doing some other episodes with him in the future. So, Please look out for those. And uh, if you want to reach us, you can email us at semper.reformanda.radio at gmail.com. If you have any questions for Tim, or you can comment on the comment section under the, uh, the episode itself, or you can find us on Facebook. Um, there's a million ways to, <laughs> to, to, to contact us. But please uh, check out Tim Kaufman's blog, whitehorseblog.com, not .org. Com. I, I said that wrong. I wrote it down wrong earlier. But I hope that everybody has a blessed week and we will check you next time. God bless.